Joining me today on the podcast is Andrew Smith, a summer associate working out of Harris Brickens Salt Lake City, Utah office. Global law and global business go hand in hand, but never seem to keep pace with each other. The importance on the global stage of developing and developed nations waxes and wanes while consumption and interconnectedness steadily increase, all the while laws and regulations change incessantly, requiring businesses to stay nimble. But how do we make sense of it all? Welcome to Global Law and Business, hosted by Harris Brickens International Business Attorneys. I'm Fred Rockefort. And I'm Jonathan Bench. Every week, we take a targeted look at legal and economic developments in locales around the world as we try to decipher global trends in law and business with the help of international experts. We cover continents, countries, regimes, governance, finance, legal developments, and whatever is trending on Twitter. We cover the important, the seemingly unimportant, the relatively simple, and the complex. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please connect with us on social media to comment, and suggest future topics and guests. Welcome everyone to Harris Brickens Global Law and Business. Co-hosting today with me is Andrew Smith, and our guest is Chris Campbell, Senior Counsel at Baker Hughes and host of the Tales of the Tribunal podcast. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Podcast to podcast. Yeah, I know. I know. And we're going to have to pick your brain a little bit. I was actually listening to some of your shows earlier and already took some notes, things we can learn from you. But to get things going, please tell us about yourself. I'm going to take a, a cue from from what you did with one of <laughs> one of your guests. Tell us everything there is to know. Sure. Yeah, I'm glad to get into that. And again, thanks for having me here on the podcast. And I appreciate your time and the chance to spend some time with your audience today. So my name is Chris Campbell. I hail from the great state of South Carolina. Go Gamecocks. Oh. And uh, well, look, I know that I don't want to ruffle too many feathers. I know you guys come from uh, from the other side of the country. Um, but I grew up there in a town called Irmo, South Carolina, went to the University of South Carolina undergraduate, uh, where I did a a uh, dual degree in business and a minor in Chinese language and culture, uh, which was my first opportunity to go study abroad in China. And from that moment forward, from my sophomore year, I was hooked and um, went from there to come, came back, finished up a, a collegiate athletic career in track and field, spent a lot of time spinning around, throwing the discus and the hammer. And from there, went on to law school, also at the University of South Carolina. Um, I did my first two years there, and then I moved to a city called Beijing, China, where I did a master's in Chinese law and international dispute resolution. Um, stayed there for a little bit longer, working for a couple of different Chinese law firms, doing cross-border M&A, dispute resolution, um, before coming back to the great state of South Carolina to work as a law clerk for um, a judicial, uh, in a judicial clerkship. Um, after that, I worked in private practice for a couple of years and then got an opportunity to uh, to work for Baker Hughes in Florence. Now, when they offered me the job in Florence, there's a Florence, South Carolina as well, as some of you listeners may be aware. So when they made me the offer, I wondered, was it now Florence, Florence or Florence, as in Florence, South Carolina? So um, so it was good to, uh, to have an opportunity to go work in Italy. And um, now a couple of years later, there in between, um, I still work for Baker Hughes now as senior counsel of uh, litigation. That's awesome. V very, very interesting background for sure. 
Now, Chris, you've hosted your podcast, Tales of the Tribunal, for two years now. What inspired you to create a podcast centered around international law? So um, how did I get inspired to do the show? So actually, this is a topic that we addressed um, in the middle of this current season of Tales of the Tribunal. Um, there was a show called, and there it was, there is a show called The Arbitration Station. Um, it is a fantastic podcast run by um, three folks um, based all based here in London now or in Europe, I guess, um, Sadia Bhatti, Joel Dahlquist and um, Brian Kotick. And they do a fantastic job of talking about um, topics in a very academic sense, but also um, just a very matter of fact, contemporary issue, contemporary way about international arbitration topics. And they've been doing that since 2017 with Brian and Joel and um, and Sadia joined them last year. And as I saw that, I, I thought that was a great conversation. But I, I thought that there was uh, maybe an, an additional or parallel niche in that there are so many fascinating individuals that work in international law and in particular international dispute resolution. You'll go to conferences and you'll be having a cup of coffee and you'll say, oh, so what are you going to do after this? And they're like, oh, I'm going to teach my uh, flamingos Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, <laughs> like wait, what? <laughs> uh, like, yeah, run that back. You got to you know, tell me some more about that. Um, and so I wanted to be able to tell the stories of those people, to get to know them a little bit more, take pull back the curtain a bit and get to know the folks that make international dispute resolution turn. And so that's what we've tried to do for the last um, now two and a half, almost three seasons of the show. And um, it literally started with um, not no microphone, you know, um, with literally me in like a hotel room at a conference in my laptop, just trying to record um, and trying to like figure out how to edit. And we've come a long way. I've kind of... Um, tricked my little brothers into helping me out. And, you know, that's where you get the music from. And, you know, they're much better at it than I am. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of how it started and how it's going. So how has the podcasting influenced your views of international law and business topics? I mean, I know that for me, definitely, I, I, I benefit greatly from, from talking to guests like you who can offer new perspectives, point me in the direction of new things, new approaches. How has that worked out for you? And perhaps you might have a, a concrete example of how the podcasting has really made a, an impact, like a practical impact on your career. Yeah, you know, I, I guess this might be um, the part two as an answer to your first question. Um, you know, so aside from being inspired by the arbitration station, uh, you know, a little secret here, trade secret is, and having a podcast, it's really a nice back door into having really interesting conversations with people that are, are prominent, that are thought leaders, that are doing important work around the field. And so exactly that's the heart, I think, of your second question is that I am learning constantly. And, you know, what, what ends up being actually released to the public um, as, the, as the show is sort of the conversation boiled down to what we think is interesting. But, you know, I'm constantly taking notes during the, the original interview and then in the setup and then even post um, about the various topics that the guests are talking about, because the, uh, these are conversations that one would might not otherwise would have. Um, you know, you asked about a, a concrete example. If you go back to season two, we had an interview with uh, Federico Ast and Sophie Napert, um, who both are doing some things with the operation called Claros, which is sort of this, you know, Though a part of me for using the non-technical term, but basically it's crowdsourcing um, dispute resolution. 
And, you know, as while it's something that I had heard about and kind of read, you know, kind of in passing to have a really sort of in-depth conversation with both of them about the future of technology, dispute resolution and what it looks like to 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 sort of have people all over the world helping make decisions on these cases and getting rewarded with cryptocurrency. I mean, that was a really fascinating talk. So there's all sorts of conversations like that um, that are happening. That's great. That sounds really fascinating. I know I, I as well have learned quite a bit from the guests that have come on to Global Law and Business, so I definitely uh, can attest to how, how it has kind of enlarged my ability to think about international law and business topics for sure. So you work on the, the senior counsel for Baker Hughes, and you've been working in, in Florence, Italy. You've talked about it a little bit. What, what exactly brought you to, to Florence, Italy? And what's the business law atmosphere like there? And, and how especially is it advantageous for, for the oil industry? What brought me to Italy? Risotto, wine, and really good uh, sunshine, 70% of the year. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I joke a little bit. It was just really an interesting and unique opportunity. Uh, at, at the time that I joined, one of the global litigation leaders was a guy named Mike McElrath, who is a pretty prominent figure in the world of international arbitration. And an opportunity to sort of work parallel and under sort of his uh, supervision was, was, I mean, it's hard to get that sort of opportunity. So Baker Hughes, is, and this is not a, you know, a trade secret in particular, we're very active in managing um, our disputes in terms of making sure that, you know, we're doing the best business-based or commercial-minded decision when it comes to managing a mediation or an arbitration or a negotiation. And so um, seeing how that can look in a very practical sense, I think, was a major reason why I took the job um, in Florence. And, and the work that I was getting to do was not just in Europe. It was based in Africa and China, um, cases in the United States, all parts of the world. So um, the work that I was doing before that was not the most internationally minded or focused. And, and I wanted to sort of expand my portfolio, my work portfolio to that. And it helped that my then fiance was based in Lisbon. So, uh, so it gave me an excuse to be in Europe. You asked also, I think, about the oil and gas industry. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that the energy sector as a whole, but also oil and gas in particular is going through a massive transformation with uh, the climate crisis that a number of countries are facing and the need to sort of develop other revenue streams or alternatives and technologies as the demands for the planet change in terms of energy. I mean, those are all, to be on the cutting edge of all those things um, was hugely important. It's kind of, The last thing I would say about it is that it's kind of funny because um, folks may not think of Baker Hughes as a technology company, but I mean, we're building technology that is going to be part of the conversation for the next step in human evolution. So, you know, we may not be Facebook or Google, but we're in that same stratosphere. So sort of following up on these general topics, what appeals to you about working in-house? What are some general thoughts you might you might have on that? There's certainly a lot of lawyers working at firms that might even perhaps, I think in some cases, romanticize, right, what, what that what that work is, and then they they make the jump. I mean, I've had some experience working in-house, so I've, I've, I've seen some of that as well already. Um, but perhaps not, not necessarily a reality check. I think just give some, some context and some nuance to what that actually looks like, especially for someone who might, again, only be looking at, at part of it. You, you've got your lawyers who have the lunch with, with in-house counsel and go back to the office thinking like, man, I wish I was doing that. You know, I wish I was, <laughs> you know, telling someone else what to do. Maybe give us, you know, a more complete picture of, of what, what in-house work entails. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think, and that, that's a great question. Um, I think it does depend a lot on what company you're in-house at. Um, I've seen the gambit of experiences and and what your daily life might look like. You know, I can say at Baker Hughes, uh, again, I guess that depends on your department. And as a litigation team, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we're, we're pretty active. You know, we definitely don't have the attitude or the mindset that, okay, a legal problem comes up, pick up the phone, immediately call external counsel and just farm it out. And that's that's the way that it goes. But, you know, even if it were, there are just so many conversations, there's so, so many issues and things that you don't appreciate as an external counsel that you have to deal with, you know, the sort of thought process of doing the legal work and the things that external counsel get paid <laughs> a lot to do. Uh, that's not necessarily the most important thing um, when you're in house. Sure, getting the right legal answer might be important, but so too, and often more so, especially from your colleagues' perspective, is doing the thing that's going to increase the bottom line. It's going to have your stock price jump. It's going to have the CEO, you know, call and say, hey, who called that shot um, in a positive context? And I think that that's something that is, is unique, that, you know, external counsel might be aware that these are some of the things that we're dealing with, but having to, to actively deal with these sort of ba this balancing act is something that's very real and part of everyday life, especially as at the time we're having this conversation, it's the early July, you know, the quarter just ended. I mean, having those conversations with accounting to say, okay, we ended up spending more or less here, or do we end up actually winning that case? Has the settlement been paid? All of those things are, are very real metrics by how you'll be evaluated and how you'll be looked at. So I think if you have a business background, if you like, you know, having some sort of meaningful impact on the commercial conversations, um, I think that that is a good, those are things that you can get into as a legal um, in-house uh, sort of representative and counsel. And also, it's just something that it takes some getting used to. It's not for everybody, just like working in a law firm is, is not for everybody. I will say it is nice not having to divide my life into eight to six minute chunks anymore. That is, that <laughs> it is nice to have a little bit of that autonomy back. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there, there's also this sort of misconception that you know, when you go in house, you don't work as much that you have less time. To, you know, again, that a legal problem lands on your desk and you just call the external counsel and it's gone. No. Um, I mean, while, yes, you might use external counsel to handle some of the issues. That's only because you need more time to do other stuff. <laughs> um, and that, that and that's kind of the reality of it. It's just following up on that. I started my career in government and there were misconceptions of that sort as well. And, and one thing for example, that folks who haven't had a chance to work in government don't realize is just how much time you waste on on admin stuff that you wouldn't have to bother with in the in, in, in the private sector, at least not usually. I mean, for example, if I need to to travel to to attend the conference these days, it's a very streamlined process, matter of minutes really to sort of at least get the green light and then the reimbursements and all that, it's, it's pretty straightforward. And then in government, and again, it, there's a good reason for that. You're, you're using taxpayer money for that travel. So there has to be that accounting. There was a, a time when I was working in the foreign service where I estimated that I was spending close to a third of my time on admin stuff, just the, the forms that had to be filled out. I mean, there was the, the, the record keeping requirements, right? So it, it might seem from the outside as well, they're not doing that much work, but the, but the reality is there's something else to it. There's a, that hidden dimension. And regarding what you said about that perspective that working in-house 
gives you. Um, absolutely. I mean, I, I've, I've had the opportunity to work with counsel in, in, in other jurisdictions playing uh, an in-house role or something along those lines of serving as the link between a corporate client and counsel in other jurisdictions. And, and very often you, you run across folks who are very good at what they do. They take uh, their lawyering very seriously, but that's one of the, the friction areas that arises. You have people who say, well, listen, we have a chance to make history here. You know, we have a chance to really change the way our local Supreme Court views, you know, trademark infringements and go back to the client and the client will say, well, look, I mean, we don't have an interest in this. You know, we get that, but we, we're not in a position to be to be funding that endeavor. And then, of course, local counsel might say, well, yeah, but if we don't do this representing a client like yours, then it's never going to happen. So you do have that 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 friction there. But absolutely, it, it's a great perspective. And I have to say that for me personally, the time I spent working in regular businesses where there's that concern over uh, budgets and and the bottom line ha- is incredibly helpful. And the reality is I, I can see when I interact with attorneys who who don't have that experience, right? You can you can see the different approaches and the different viewpoints. I have to admit sometimes and when it comes to those um, you know, six minute increments, I feel the pain, right, of the of the client because I've been on the other side and try to the extent that I can to be to be conscious of of, of their concerns. Yeah. And I think, you know, in, in turn kind of responding to one of the things that you just said, it's easy to sort of feel this little tension or a little bit of exhaustion with administrative things or filling out paperwork and forms and all those things. And it seems kind of pointless or, or, you know, sort of futile until it's not, until there's an audit, until there's a lawsuit that needs to look at those documents in particular. And then you're glad that you filed these things or that you're glad that so-and-so in accounting kept up with these records. I mean, there are cases that we've had where, you know, the other side is, is being a fire breathing dragon and trying to, you know, tell us about how we're a dirty company and basically the next Enron. And then we pull out our accountant who kept very meticulous notes about where everything went or the engineer who had the daily work log every year for the last seven years. It makes a difference. And um, it is exhausting. And I'm not going to say I love paperwork or anything like that, but you start to see the value in it. Um, I guess maybe the more veteran, the more seasoned that you get, I guess. I wanted to shift now to China. You spent a year studying in Beijing, as you mentioned, and uh, studying Chinese law and Chinese language. And I'd just like to know what inspired you to study Chinese and Chinese law and how has that influenced the direction of your career path? So I'm going to give you um, the extended answer. Uh, and this is going to be breaking news because I don't think I've ever mentioned this publicly Um maybe just family and friends. Um, so I was a huge, and this, this is part is public knowledge. I'm a huge nerd and coming out of high school, um, I was really into like anime and video games, Japanese culture, all that kind of stuff. And I wanted to go to Japan and, you know, you kind of have those conversations that one might have with a mentor or, you know, a parent. And I kind of told my plan to my dad and dad being a you know, regular reader of the Wall Street Journal and all these sort of business things, he goes, well, this is at a time when China was seeing that that double digit, uh, you know, economic GDP growth year over year, you know, now get into the details as to why that was, but it was huge economic growth. And my dad, I guess, was kind of pointing at, you know, the long term vision potential for having the ability to have some ability to speak Chinese language, 
to have some familiarity with the culture, to to be you know a, an American or a Westerner that has some familiarity and ability to sort of fluently move through the culture and just being comfortable in China. And so he said, um, okay, well, maybe maybe you can do the Japan thing. Maybe you can go there on vacation or something. Why don't you take Chinese as an undergrad instead? And, and literally, that's what started it. Um, the Moore School of Business um, out of the University of South Carolina has a, a, a world-renowned international business program. Um, in particular, its relationship with uh, doing business in China was one of the few schools that was having this sort of deep connection with it. And so um, I enrolled in the Chinese minor. And uh, the rest is history. I got a, a scholarship from the Confucius Institute to go study in China um, and did a, did, did a summer there. Um, I, I will mention this at the risk of knowing that the Internet never forgets. One of the reasons why we got this scholarship was because our class did this tribute song. Well, it was to the Olympic song at the time, uh, Beijing Wo Ho Ni. So it was um, basically you and I, and it was the Olympic song, um, partnered with uh, Beijing Huan Ying Ni. And we dressed up in traditional Chinese garb. And um, there's this really classic moment at the end of the video where me and my buddy, who was like 6'4", like embrace at the end of the video. And it played on like local Chinese television. And um, we got this huge scholarship to go study for a summer in China. And so all of those things sort of culminated together um, from my experience with Chinese language and then culture and then going back to study at Tsinghua and then working at... um, at Zhonglun and High Wind Partners in Beijing after my graduation. All of those things sort of built the narrative around China, and it's kind of been just part of my life since. Um, and I've spent a, a large amount of time there and plan to continue to, uh, to work and be there from time to time. I think you alluded to this earlier, but just kind of go into it a little bit more. Does your work take you to China? Do you travel there for business? So in my work at Baker Hughes, while we've had some matters that have dealt with China, you know, and, you know, with some, you know, regularity where I've had to, you know, uh, make contacts and be familiar with what's going on contemporarily. Um, I haven't had to travel to China yet for work, um, in part because of the pandemic and all travel was stopped. But I imagine at some point in the future, uh, you know, we still do work in that part of the world. So whether it be in Hong Kong or Singapore or mainland or anything like that, uh, I could imagine a future where I, I need to go there either for an arbitration or mediation or, you know, maybe just hopefully maybe even negotiating a deal. So I'm keeping things positive. Given your perspective, you've lived in China, studied there compared to the average American. You have a lot more exposure to to the country and to, and to the culture. So with that perspective, maybe you could offer just some general thoughts on the direction of, of the U.S.-China relationship and how, how things are going there. Again, we don't have to make it controversial, but just uh, perhaps what would you like to see in terms of how that relationship develops at the level of, of the average citizen, right? Not maybe, you know, we can't change what the government does, but there's certainly a social dimension to it, right? I mean, people here in the U.S., just as they do in China, right? They, they have their opinions and their, and their viewpoints. Do you think that there's work to be done in that sense, uh, in terms of educating people better as to what China is all about and then to maybe try to reach some level of understanding? That doesn't necessarily mean we accept the Chinese viewpoint on everything, but just as, as a way of, of, of finding a middle ground. Just would love to hear your thoughts on, on this general topic. So, so yes, and you raised a few issues there, uh, and we'll, we'll start with the last one. I think there, you know, I, I don't know the specific percentage or number, but there was some study that says that some larger than you would think number of Americans actually never leave the country. And I think that 
whether it's China or someplace in Europe or Africa, wherever you might find yourself, if you don't have an opportunity to go be on the ground, to meet those people, to be involved in their culture in much the way that other parts of the world are sort of at least at some extent familiar with American culture through our media, I think it's very easy to sort of otherize or to make people in another country just a sort of faceless mass, the Chinese, the, you know, the British, you know, they're just, they become these stereotypical sort of cartoon characters um, in your mind. And I think travel sort of dilutes that a bit. You know, it's, it's much harder to sort of just write off, oh, all the Chinese think this way, you know, when you've actually been there and you've met people and you've got Chinese friends, you've had Chinese, like proper Chinese food in China. Um, than it is if your only experience is as someone that lives in the middle of, in middle America or that will never leave their country. And I think that that if we could achieve that, and I think, and by the way, the same is true for China, Chinese people leaving China and having an opportunity to go experience and engage with other parts of the world. Now, of course, the natural conclusion will then be that the understanding and the cultural appreciation, and this is not even getting to the language issues, will be limited. And as long as there's that sort of arm's length, or maybe even slightly hostile sort of feeling between the two powers, that sort of trickles down to the populations. And I think when you have leadership that are saying these sorts of incendiary language, calling things like Kung flu and China virus, all of those types of things, that's only going to, that, that, that's not a kind of conversation starter that can be a bridge, even if the other side wanted to be more hospitable. It's easy enough for the average Chinese person to hear that sort of language and to just assume that that's how all Americans think and that's how they feel. So we want to, you know, retaliate and do something similar. And that doesn't help anyone. So I think, yes, there. right now, undoubtedly, the relationship between the two countries are, are strained and um, are not exactly looking cozy in the near future. But I don't think that it has to be like that. I don't think that the issues that the United States has with China, and there are many, and they across a number of things we won't talk too specifically for a few reasons, um, are many. And I think that similarly, you know, China has issues with things that are the way that the United States does its business. So I think before you can either get into the substance of either one of those talking points, sets of talking points, you have to at least start with the ba basic modicum of understanding and respect. Um, this is not, you know, the Cold War era. This is not a situation where you want military or armed conflicts. So if you want to see some growth in a positive relationship between the two countries, it's got to start with the basic level of respect between the leadership. And that can, for those listening, that starts with the individual citizenry. How well do you know the other side, the people in, you know, that you're calling the Chinese or the Americans? Andrew's going to be asking us for recommendations. But before we do that, it goes without saying that we want to include your your podcast as a recommendation. We don't want to single out any guests. You know, they're all great. Um, I'm sure you feel the same way about yours. But for someone who, who who's listening and who's saying, I got to check this out, but they're going to look at a long list of episodes, what would be perhaps uh, a recommendation or two as to where they should start? I know that's a tricky question, and then it's going to depend on the on the person. But if someone had 30 minutes of their time and, and you wanted to try to, to snag them as a regular listener, where would you point them to? We'll give the easy ones first, the ones that, are, that would come up immediately out of this season. Um, so I think, uh, and today that we talked today is um, July 1st, 
uh, is a special day for a number of reasons. Not only is it the start of a new month, but you have Claudia Solomon taking over as the president of the court of I, the ICC court. Um, she starts her term. She's the first woman to sit in that position. And she was um, guest number one for season three. Uh, so, she, so she's fascinating. and She's just a cool individual to talk with. Um, your boss, Dan Harris, did an episode. Um, episode five of season three is a great one to talk to um, and listen back to because Dan just has a fantastic and really interesting career. Um, the episodes with Shvinya Wachtel and Sneha Ashtakar. But um, episode seven and eight from this season, both really great as well. Um, and that's not to say I, I'm adding the own, my own caveat again that the other episodes aren't great. But I'm saying that if you want to get a good flavor of the show, um, those are really good ones to do. Um, you know, if you've got more time, more than 30 minutes or so, and you wanted to take a step back to um, season two, um, episodes two and three with Ben Davis are just a fantastic sort of um, masterclass on what it was like uh, starting as a, as a black lawyer in international arbitration. Um, and there's the sort of things that one has to deal with and sort of the trials and tribulations of that. And then the impact that one can have on the field, even if you don't have to necessarily be on the, the, the front lines. Uh, I think the episode with Karina Baltag is a good one. Um, and you know what, I'm going to stop naming out specific ones here before you, I don't want to, you know, make anyone upset, but those are a couple of the good ones out of season two. Um, season one is great. Um, you know, all of those are, are, are insightful and, you know, bear with me because the audio will undoubtedly, it gets worse the earlier in time you go because I didn't have a microphone. And we are well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so bear with me. But I mean, I think all of the episodes were great. Um, all of, everyone has, as I said at the beginning of the interview, every one of the people that we have interviewed has this really interesting backstory or something cool that they do that you wouldn't expect necessarily. And I think that's what's great about listening to these conversations because you get to pull back the curtain in that way. Chris, I totally agree with what you were saying earlier about uh, travel. I know when I was in Spain, I had the opportunity to uh, get to know people from all over the world and uh, having studied geography quite a bit um, in school before I before I went to Spain for the first time. It was a total game changer to actually be there and actually meet people from 70 or 80 different countries, kind of have a, a an idea of kind of what the people are like in that that was probably the most enriching and special part about being in Spain or really just traveling abroad anywhere for me. Um, wanted to ask you, what are some fields of law that you see potential for uh, up and coming practitioners? So I'll start with uh, the thing that is taking up a lot of my extracurricular time. Um, I, I have an article that's forthcoming next month or later this year, depending on when you listen to it, um, on space law. And the sort of industry that's coming up around that and how there's a lot written about the fact that there's not a lot written. But, <laughs> you know, you have, uh, you know, tourism issues, you have uh, mining and energy and, you know, sovereignty issues about what all of that is going to look like. And, there's, and we need desperately need more scholars, especially from the spacefaring nations, but from all over the globe to help tackle these issues, because, um, it may have seemed far off, but we are now reaching the point where humans are going to begin the adventure of living in space. And that is something that we will probably, I don't know how well we'll see that within our lifetime, but that is something that's certainly right on the horizon. Um, I think, you know, some of the easier ones are the ones that have become a little bit more mainstream, you know, data privacy, uh, that has become an increasingly huge issue from, uh, the issues that the United States has had, um, with its securing its data privacy infrastructure and 
that that many countries have had all over um, all over the world dealing with how you sort of navigate that while still allowing people their liberty and the ability to sort of do commerce in an effective and efficient means. Uh, cryptocurrency, blockchain, those are you know words that you can just say and you know at a dinner party and someone will be like, oh, that guy's sharp. But but I mean they're really interesting <laughs> fields of business as well. And there's a lot of money moving through those uh, through those channels. I think uh, esports is something that's often overlooked, and it's something that you know it's just one of those things I would really love to read about and write about more myself. But um, you know, you had a, a couple of kids over the last couple of years win millions of dollars from winning like a Fortnite tournament. I mean, that's where the money goes. That's where uh, there are these interesting fields of law, um, environmental law, you know, with the climate issues as we've talked about before. Um, property rights and water law. I mean, all those types of things I think are worth spending some time um, working. But I think even of all those things, and this would be my my 30 seconds of a soapbox, no matter what it is, you've got to make time to to give back to, to your community and to make the world a little bit better. I mean, that's, I think our charge as lawyers, as legal scholars, that we set the parameters for how our societies will act and operate. And that if we don't do it, um, it leaves a vacuum for authoritarians and for bad actors. And so we must be vigilant. And that's how lawyers can affect change in a human rights capacity. Let me just follow up on that very briefly. Um, I was listening to a, to a video on YouTube. And here's an area that I, th- I hadn't thought of, but this guy sort of mentioned it. And I think there's, it's going to, to be a, a fascinating area for those that, that jump into it. And it's the intersection between blockchain and, and crypto and state law. He was talking about how some Bitcoin billionaire uh, died, and um, there's questions now as to as to how that's that's going to be handled. And as as this guy pointed out, you know, people say, well, it'll be handled in the same way that any other asset is. And he's like, well, yeah, but it's not any any other asset, right? So I think that's that's going to be interesting. And I'll be honest, I uh, had not heard of the term ever. Just just tells you about my levels of coolness. But when we were in the middle of the exclusion process for the tariffs that were imposed during the last administration, we were working with a lot of companies that wanted to to obtain an exclusion from from the tariffs and of course central to that entire process is being able to demonstrate that there, there's no alternative source and and you have to demonstrate it, that that your product is pretty unique so i remember working with a client who makes very fancy chairs which at first glance just kind of looked like a like a really cool desk chair but they said no no, no these are specifically for esports you know, these are these are for competitive gamers. And um, I, I looked at it, right? I mean, I, I think um, I couldn't see any technological feature that might make them a little bit different, right? But the connection is that these people spend a lot of time sitting down, right? And they need to have their, their drinks and the sound needs to be just there. So so absolutely, I had no idea. As you pointed out, I mean, this is, this is big business. Yeah, I, I would have never thought of it. But once I started <laughs> digging into it, again, one of those fields that one might not think of. And there's no regulation. I mean, you know, if a dispute happens between two esports teams or between an esport team and its players or leagues, or let's say um, you're playing a StarCraft tournament. I mean, that's still, well, okay, that's a little bit, I'm old now. But let's play, say you're playing, uh, you know, one of these uh, tournaments and let's say um, a power goes off or, you know, a, gl- a game glitches. I mean, what are the protocols? And what are the dispute resolution mechanisms for deciding how that will play out? I mean, the, 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 the answer is right now, there's no guidance. It's just whoever, however the event makers want to do it. And that's, uh, 
that's cool and all until someone loses a few million dollars because you decided that we'll say one is still contemporary street fighter because you decided that you knew uh you don't want to give a hudokin uh, opportunity to, to the reed player i mean what what, what is that going to mean for the for, for the for the payout so it's important yeah, and you can be sure that there will be lawyers ready to take things to the to the next level, right? Uh, when those, you know, there's going to be someone there, you know, who's who's getting ready to 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 make it into a judicial dispute. Well, Chris, this has been a fascinating conversation. There, there's so much more that that we'd like to talk about. Um, I'm going to go ahead and present an invitation at some point to have you come back and sort of follow up on some of the topics that we discussed. But before we sign off, uh, I'd like to ask you for any recommendations other than your podcast that uh that you might have for us so um recommendations uh so i read at the beginning of the year i finally got around to it uh, talking with strangers from malcolm gladwell uh that was a fantastic book and i guess i had my impressions i kind of thought it was going to be another one of these books that talks about um how divided and how political things were in the united states but it took some really interesting turns and I think, and I don't want to spoil it. So I think it's absolutely worth taking a look at. Yeah. That, that's probably the biggest book recommendation I'd have for right now. Um, I'm enjoying uh, right now high on the hog from Netflix, uh, which gets into um, culinary delights in the United States in particular. It talks about my, my home state of South Carolina and some of the African-American roots there. So um, I, I think that those are, are important topics and things to, to get into and then if you're wanting something that's a little bit more culturally based, um, you know, I've been reading a lot of W.B. Du Bois and his uh, kind of writings about race relations and the voices of the oppressed people and in particular black folks in the United States. And I think for the moment in time we find ourselves in as a country, I think that those are things that are worth revisiting because it shows how much and how little things change over the course of some time, but I, I appreciate the opportunity to come on to talk to you guys. Before I get out of here, I will give a shout out to uh, another guest of you guys from some time ago, Mark McLawhorn. Um, I don't know if you'll hear this, but Mark, hey, I see you. I look forward to seeing you and everyone else back home, and um, you know we'll have to catch up sometime. So thank you guys for having me, and I look forward to coming back. Fantastic. I, there's a couple of other guests that I want to to talk to you uh, about once we sign off, people that you, you might want to get in touch with if you don't know them already. Andrew, any recommendations from you? Yeah, my recommendation today is an article written by a former professor of mine. It's called Advancing Sustainable Development with FDI, Why Policy Must Be Reset. And this is just a topic that I've been really interested in uh, for a long time, kind of understanding how a foreign direct investment can, like, what are the actual effects on host countries uh, with regards to development, and especially in this day and age, sustainable development. So it's a really good, informative article that answered a lot of the questions that I had um, with some very interesting policy conclusions as well. Fred, what about you? So, Chris, you mentioned Malcolm Gladwell, so I'll just, just follow up on that. He has his, his podcast, Revisionist History, and he had a few episodes on the, I think it was on the Bomber Mafia. We'll, we'll include the proper links in our page, but uh, that was a fascinating, fascinating podcast. Really, really enjoyed it. This was during World War II, really, and the, the sort of, well, it talked about a bunch of different things, but including the ethics of, of these bombing campaigns that were carried out. And anyway, so... Second Gladwell uh, recommendation of the episode. So, Chris, again, thank you so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. We'll definitely look up some of those um, episodes that, that you recommended and, of course, encourage everyone out there to have a listen. Thank you so much for having me. 
See you around. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. We look forward to connecting with you on social media to continue discussing developments in global law and business. This podcast was produced by Harris Bricken with executive producer Madeline Williams, music composed by Stephen Schmidt. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you then.